1: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: This BOF podcast is brought to you by Cottonworks, the free online resource for the textile and apparel industry. Cottonworks gives you the tools and inspiration you need to create and market outstanding cotton products. Create a free account today at cottonworks.com BOF.
3: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, December 3rd. Vesture Collective is one of the leaders in the fast-growing fashion resale market. Earlier this year in its latest round of funding, the company achieved a valuation of $1.7 billion. In the latest episode of the BOF show on the fashion resale market, Max Bittner, Vesture Collective's CEO, attributes this success to a number of factors, including the ease of transactions, pandemic-driven closet cleanouts, and shifting consumer values. But he also acknowledges the challenges that lie ahead, particularly when it comes to verifying the authenticity of products in the face of ever more sophisticated counterfeits. To watch episode five of the BOF show on resale, please find the link in our episode notes. But first, here's my full interview with Max Bittner exclusively on the BOF podcast. I first want to just ask you in kind of very basic terms, if you could explain what Vestiaire Collective is. And what the luxury resale market is thats just what is it
4: i think the easiest way to explain to people what it is we do it's we're connecting a global community of fashion lovers and we try to find the right home for the right product at the right time in the product's life cycle to simplify that a bit more someone's trash is someone else's treasure so in, in an ideal world we don't have any single product lying in someone's wardrobe unworn unused and we find somewhere globally a user who has the same passion for that product as the uh, the old user had. And what we do as a platform is we connect that community. So we try to get as many sellers as possible to bring their unused wardrobe onto the internet, onto our app. And then we try to find the right buyer to it. And we as a middleman play a controlling function, a governing function to make sure that the transaction between buyers and sellers is as smooth as possible. We have the role of checking that the product is authentic, that there's no quality issues with the product. And if there's any problems in between buyers and sellers, we step in as a platform to control everything goes the right way.
3: And how do you make
4: money? Commission. So the seller has to pay us a commission for this service.
3: What's the commission? Right. Right? rate?
4: You... On average, we pay a commission just over 20%. Okay, there's so differences by price points. So if you're going to sell 40,000 euro Birkenbag. You're not going to pay 20%. We capped the commission at €2,000. At the bottom end, the minimum commission is €15, Euros, but on average is roughly 20%. What's the most expensive
3: item ever sold on Vesture Collective?
4: The most expensive item ever sold was an €85,000 Himalayan Birkin, which was sold from a Hong Kong seller to a New York buyer. We actually had an incident two weeks ago where someone bought a 250,000 golden Patek Philippe but the seller then didn't ship it, so we were very sad about that. But, you know, p- there they have been items close to 100,000 euros bought and sold on the platform.
3: And on average, what is the value
4: of a transaction between
3: buyer and seller?
4: The average basket size on Vestia is roughly 300 euros. So we have a wide spectrum. You know, we sell Birken bags every day, 10, 15, 20,000. But we also sell your 70 euros Cezanne dresses.
3: How does Vestia Collective differ from other companies in the space? such as Depop?
4: I think to simplify it as as much as possible, there's two categories of resale companies. They're the peer-to-peer platforms like a Depop, which mainly just bring products online that sellers are selling and then buyers and sellers connect directly and more controlled marketplaces like like ourselves take a more enhanced role within the process of A and B. And you can roughly say that the more expensive the items on the platform, the more the platform has to be part of the governance to make sure that the quality and the authentication of the products are ensured. And that obviously, if a customer buys a certain price point, they get the service they would expect. I've kind of stepped back since joining this year and said, is that really a true reflection of the customers that we're facing? It's not just cheap items versus expensive items, uncontrolled versus controlled marketplace. Because if you look at your wardrobe or anyone else's wardrobe. You have some expensive, what I would call investment pieces or, or you know, luxury brands, but you also have your everyday wear. And I want to have as big a share of the wardrobe that you have. So we've kind of broadened our assortment and kind of came a bit in a hybrid mode between those two. But you know, overall, to simplify, there's the peer-to-peer models, less controls, much bigger assortment, less authentication, less moderation, curation, anything can go on the platform. And then there's the more controlled platforms, where we curate what goes on the platform, we make sure it looks nice, and then we step in also to control the items.
3: So you sit somewhere in between the two. You have both the kind of peer-to-peer element, and you have this kind of managed marketplace element. How do you draw the line in terms of what kinds of products you won't sell on the platform?
4: The lower price point, the minimum basket size you can sell is €15. So you can't sell anything which is below €15. If you think about the average basket size of some of, the, some of these peer-to-peer platforms, I think that is their average basket size. So that we clearly differentiate already there, and we try to limit what I would call broadly fast fashion. We don't really want to have fast fashion and encourage fast fashion on the platform.
3: Why not?
4: Because I think it's you know we we have a positioning of more higher end fashion, you know, real luxury, real designer, something that people want to buy and sell for a much longer period. One of the key things in the roles that we play. As a second-hand platform, is that we want to educate people that what they buy and sell is not consumables, just fashion. It's really an asset. And, and I think if you think about the way we, as a consumer class, need to change the way we think about consumption, is that we need to take much better care and appreciate the value of the items that we have because there is a residual value. So if you think about the pinnacles of sustainability, reuse, repair, recycle, we want to educate consumers think of the item as an asset. And if you think of an asset, treat it better. And you also think about reselling it afterwards. And once you know that you're going to sell a product in the future, by definition, you might change the way you buy the product in the future. The
3: naysayers about the luxury market, including some of my own editorial team, say that actually resale isn't necessarily more sustainable because it's a business model that actually encourages people to continue buying stuff and we're Mm -hmm. in this climate crisis and 10 years left before we hit kind of crisis point. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you respond to that kind of criticism that, you know, the resale market actually propagates consumption as opposed to manages
4: it or minimizes it? I think that's is probably the the question that concerns us the most because I think as part of our core mission it is we want to change consumer behavior to the better. And we've actually spent quite a lot of time with external agencies to challenge ourselves And our goal is to be carbon neutral by 25 without any offsetting. And we've looked through all our emission, whether it's our transport or the way that we reduce consumption, and we think that target of being carbon neutral without offsetting is possible. If I look at the naysayers, you know, we look at our consumer base, we interact a lot with our consumer base. And fact of the matter is we do reduce the amount people consume because what we help them to do is to trade up. I think if you think about that trading up concept, what we do is convince people instead of buying 1st firsthand, they buy Cezanne secondhand. If buying Cezanne firsthand, they buy Isabel 2nd secondhand instead of buying Isabel Marant first hand and so on, instead of buying firsthand Chanel, they buy secondhand MS. So you basically go up the food chain. And we want to hope and, and educate every consumer that they should maybe pay a bit more upfront for an item that they're gonna wear longer and where they're more likely to take care of it and then resell it in the future. So I, I would challenge your colleagues on that, and I have challenged in the past. I know you have. Um, yeah. Because you know, in the end, you know, the, the kind of numbers tell their own story. So
3: you're rattling off all of these names, Isabelle Maron, Chanel, Himalaya, mm-hmm. Birkin, but you didn't come from this world. Um, no, you didn't. maybe probably didn't even know what a Himalaya Birkin
4: was. I well, used to climb the Himalayas, maybe, but I didn't, <laughs> I did, I didn't find any Birkins there. <laughs> No, I, I have to admit, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a brute. Yeah, I think there would be many people in the industry who would probably still roll their eyes at me. And that's fine. What we do is use technology to connect buyers and sellers. And that's the same wherever you go. It's a question about logistics. It's a question about personalization of the platform so people see what they want to buy. It's about customer service. It's about user experience. But the beautiful thing about the products that we sell now, and I've really gained massive appreciation to it, is that it's real craftsmanship. They're real pieces of art. And trying to educate people of that underlying intrinsic value of these items and therefore making people change towards what I think is better consumption is probably the most fulfilling thing there is. I mean, I, I had a town hall here again this morning before before you guys arrived. And I told people, in your native Canada, it's 49 degrees in Vancouver, which is not normal. You know, somewhere else in the world, there are floods right now. Like, we all have to do something. It's not about what I want or what your journalists say or what the other people you interview would like to do. It's it's about working on something that actually make a difference. And that's what we do. So if, if I get to sell beautiful MS bags and Gucci shoes, that makes me a very happy man. What brought you to this Industry in the first place. You know, you had
3: this very successful career at Lazada yep. in Southeast Asia. This is such a different context industry. You're obviously a very successful entrepreneur, so there's a business rationale for this as well. Yeah, I
4: mean, I left Lazada after the the, the company was sold to Alibaba. Uh, there was you know, no more you know role to play there for me, and I wanted to come back to my native European home. Yeah. I wasn't too specific where in Europe, but you know, I think for me, the beauty in Europe is that anything is so close. And the opportunity came a bit to me, not me coming to the opportunity, because I was in a tunnel in Southeast Asia for the last six, seven years, and I didn't have that much time to think about anything else. But when the opportunity came to me, it just struck me along you know, a couple of kind of axes, which, which got me very excited. The first one was just the sheer potential scale of it. Whether you size the luxury industry, which is a $300 billion industry, whether you size the clothing industry, which could be anywhere from two to five trillion, and if you think and combine those two and think, okay, you're helping people to move from a three, five trillion dollar market to a $300 billion dollar market, that's just a lot of potential purchasing power. And if you combine that on the supply side with all the wardrobes where items are just lying there unused, unworn, and you bring those two together that's a big opportunity you know like lazada i love the idea of scale the beautiful thing about tech is that it allows you to exponentially scale whatever it is you do globally so that got me super excited the sheer potential size of the opportunity will it take time yes but you know good things come to those people who have the patience to then invest their time in, in the good things the second thing that got me super excited was applying the learnings that i've had from asia Back to the West, to Europe, to the U.S., e-commerce has dramatically accelerated in Asia, both in China and Southeast Asia. That, that I think most of us still today cannot really comprehend in the West, because there there was no alternatives, there was no other opportunities. Store networks were just not rolled out in any shape or form. You know, there's not that many, not that many Chanel stores, there's not that many MS stores in Jakarta, in Kuala Lumpur, in Manila. So people had to go online, you know, go onto the app. And e-commerce evolved in a very different way to the West because everyone was mobile first. So the whole concept of a social commerce, gamification, engagement of the consumers between buyers and sellers has developed differently. And I looked at Europe and said, okay, this is a different model. There's no reason whatsoever this should not work in Europe or in the U.S., because your 15-year-old girl in Jakarta, in Beijing, in Paris, or in New York, they're all on TikTok, they're all on Instagram, they're all doing the same thing, they're all mobile first. So it's a matter of time where that shift that has happened already in Asia will also happen to Europe. And I saw fashion in general, but especially secondhand fashion, such an engaging product and, and process where I felt that these learnings I had in Asia could apply just as well. And the third pillar was absolutely the sustainability part. After Lazada, I've been incredibly fortunate. And I think we all have some sort of a duty. And And to go now back to work and working on something where I can feel really proud of myself and the team is, is just very fulfilling. So those three items made the decision incredibly easy to join Vestia.
3: So let's talk about each of those things very quickly. Sure. On, on the kind of opportunity, you yep. know, which is there's all of these clothes, unworn, unused, sitting in people's closets, that is the potential opportunity to create some. How do you actually get more and more people to decide to part with their clothes or their items? Because a lot of people haven't even understood that actually what they're sitting on in their closets could be worth a lot of money. You know, Getting people to part with their clothes and think about uploading them to a place like Vesture Collective is the first step. What, what, is the, what are the tactics you use to get people to do that? I mean,
4: the first, the first question... I ask, and the first question, you know, we as a platform need to ask our consumers is, what is your wardrobe worth? I can ask you, Imran, I'm sure you get a lot of beautiful items. What is your wardrobe worth today? I have absolutely no idea. And most people don't. So I think the first part is really giving people a sense that what lies in their wardrobes are assets and not consumables. I think this is really the first part for us to change our consumer behavior. And there's different ways, of course, how we can educate Mm -hmm. it. Uh, to be honest, the last two years since I've been here, I've been really focused on organic growth because I, we had already a very big consumer base. And, and the first part was to get them really engaged and to really embrace what it is we do. And we let kind of word of mouth uh, do most of the the work for us. Word of mouth comes from you know users telling each other. And, and the good thing about social media is that it's ex- exaggerated uh, extremely fast. It goes to press, so I sit in interviews like this as much as possible to talk and and, and share our vision but also as we grow now it's about marketing i mean it's about online marketing it's about branding it's about tv potentially in the future it's really about you know getting the word out there and the challenge of that is explaining to people extremely fast you know with the attention span that most people have these days that what is very complex and what you've seen when you walk in this logistics operations I explain that to them in a most simple way I think the second challenge is just to make it as easy as possible, you know, make the user experience and the customer experience simpler and simpler. And and are we there yet? Absolutely not. At the moment, it's just, you know, it still takes five, six minutes to upload an item on this We can't ever have it be 10 seconds or 20 seconds, like maybe some of the peer-to-peer sites, because we want them to fill out certain informations. You know, what is the material? What is the size of the bag? Any sort of history that allows us to then personalize it and, and make it easier to discover. But that process is still too long. You know, it should be two, three minutes, maybe two minutes. So across every part of what we do is just how can we make it easier? Because if you think about a marketplace like ours, it's buyers, sellers, and the only thing that defines success is the liquidity that we provide. And everything that we can do to remove the friction points will help grow marketplace, will help increase the liquidity.
3: I was sitting next to someone at dinner the other night, someone, I'd say, very fashionable, a woman probably with a vast wardrobe, and somehow we ended up talking about resale. Okay. And I asked her, have you ever used Vestiaire Collective? And she said, I hadn't used it until the last 16 months.
5: You know, we were living
3: in the middle of this period. And she said, by the way, she doesn't buy things on Vestiaire Collective. She just sells. How has customer behavior, both in terms of, sellers and buyers shifted over this period of disruption that we've all been living through?
4: I mean overall, I'm not gonna lie, the concept of confinement, people being restricted to their home, offline stores being closed has been beneficial for e-commerce in general and anything online. I mean there's been a a massive acceleration of digital adoption, there's no secret there And, and we've benefited from that like everyone else. I think where secondhand has gotten an extra boost is firstly through the fact that people being constrained to their home started discovering their home for the first time. You know, we're all so busy these days. We're always planning, what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing this weekend? What are we doing this holiday? That we never actually spend time to just breathe in, breathe out, and discover, hey, it's interesting if I lie on my sofa the other way around, I have a completely different angle of my house. I mean, we started appreciating things, you know, much closer to us, much more. And I think the same way we've started appreciating the space that we live in. And a big part of that space is the wardrobe. And a big part of what people own is lying in the wardrobe. And, you know, with time, uh, people get creative. and, and, And absolutely, people started thinking about just cleaning up their closet because they said, do I really need this? No, it's a good way to keep busy. And it's a good way to do something good. I think the second thing that has really helped us is this whole awareness of how everything we took for granted can change how fast it can change. I mean, you know, the last year has been a shock for everyone. And, you know, we were all fine partying like it's 1999, you know, in 2019, early 2020, and suddenly, boom, our life changed. And if you think about COVID, it's an absolute awful disease virus that has caused terrible suffering across the whole planet. But if you think then how much worse global warming will be and again coming back to where we stand on the planet today global warming is not something which will come in the future it's today depending on where you are on the planet it's either on fire or underwater that's today yeah so i think it's it's really allowed people to be quite self-reflective and to start asking themselves okay what can i do myself to be different and secondhand is one of these very few things where people can do something today. And I think that awareness has really helped. And I think the third part, which also had had an impact on the business, is just the economic uncertainty that people have faced. I mean, the fact of the matter is what people have in their wardrobes are assets and during periods of uncertainty, there's a way for them to monetize these assets. So I think we really played a role also in to help give people some uncertainty. You know, Some people had to sell stuff to make money. Some people couldn't afford first-hand clothes anymore, so we can still make these items affordable for them in second-hand. So, if you combine these three bigger trends, of course, COVID has been.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Introducing WonderSuite from Bluehost.com.
5: Go to shopify.com slash bof to take your retail business to the next level today. shopify.com slash bof
1: This message comes from bof sponsor ebay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say ebay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh and every step feels fly when it comes to style and luxury ebay gets it they're making sure the things you love are checked by experts and not just any experts specialized experts real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience so when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee shop with confidence every inch stitch sole Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: Transformational for us. Any metrics you can share on just the spike? I mean, we've seen, as you mentioned, e-commerce acceleration yeah. very clear across the board, whether you're Amazon or you're a or you're like a homeware site that sells everything online. Like all of these things. Exp- yeah. like in, can you give us I mean,
4: The whole year of 2020 has seen 100% growth of order growth. We've seen a 100% growth on items being listed on the platform, and at the peak of COVID, we were having 25,000 listings per day. So if you think about the assortment of a net of a far-fetched, how much are we talking about? 60,000, 70,000? Mm-hmm. Maybe on some of the marketplaces, 150, 200,000. We have 25,000 new items coming onto the platform per day. I mean, just, just thinking about the sheer scale of unused inventory is just enormous. So, so it's been uh, pretty mind-boggling.
3: How did you manage that? You know, this center is a quite physical process, the authentication, all of that. If all your employees are at home for certain periods of time, the kind of uploads are 25,000 new items per day. You know, how did you manage that with your team?
4: It's been an incredibly stressful year. and, And, you know, I think it's important to just emphasize how amazing the commitment and the hard work of all our team has been over the last year. But one of the biggest steps we actually took was to introduce and significantly broaden our peer-to-peer direct shipping model. And I basically took a step, which I never thought I would do. At the beginning, direct shipping was only for items below 200 euros, only for selected brands. And as COVID hit and I realized with this sudden spike, we were not going to be able to manage the logistics of it. I basically opened up direct shipping for all items all sellers below five hundred euros, and now it's below thousand euros. So I was able to take a huge amount of pressure from the warehouse operations and actually keep our staff safe with it. And the benefit of that was that actually that was probably the, the the most transformational decision for the business. So I've you know I was pushed into making the right decision, but I made the decision for the right reasons, which was to protect the staff. So I think it's a lucky coincidence in some sort of way.
3: That, however, creates another situation,
4: which is two hundred
3: dollars, five hundred dollars. Yep. the peer-to-peer element is growing. Mm -hmm. This whole operation exists to authenticate products. Exactly. So if products aren't coming through here, Mm -hmm. there's a much higher chance, I assume, that counterfeit or fake or poor quality products are going to enter the flow, which damages trust in your community. Absolutely. And that trust is absolutely critical to making this work. Absolutely. And I looked online and went on YouTube and I found... Quite a few passionate sellers and buyers complaining about fakes mm-hmm. quite vociferously and sometimes in 50-minute videos, mm-hmm. unboxing things and looking at things. You know, how do you manage that tension around authenticity? Because without authenticity,
4: this luxury-focused operation starts to teeter a bit. I think the, the concept of trust is really bigger than just your authentication piece. The concept of trust is also around what do we do when something goes wrong? How do we step in as a platform? The concept of trust is about how much transparency we give the buyer on who the seller is, what has been their sales history, how do we classify them, are they trusted, are they an expert seller or not? And I think it's also important to mention that, yes, we've opened the peer-to-peer model, but no one is forced to do peer-to-peer. Anyone, even if it's a 15 euro item or just 16 euros in this case, item being sold, can choose authentication. They just need to pay for it. And one of the key things that I've done to introduce and make sure that that we differentiate ourselves to the peer-to-peer platforms is to remind people that what we do here is a real service and there's a fee tied to it. So we really leave it up to the buyer to decide if they want to get it authenticated or not. If you step back on the actual topic of fakes and products being sold, at the moment, one in a thousand products is fake. So the chances of buying something on Vestiaire and it not being authentic is one in a thousand. How
3: do you know it's one in a
4: thousand? Because we measure it. So we measure any issue that has ever been recorded, whether it gets blocked here in the authentication or whether something has been recognized by the buyers, is one in a thousand. Is that perfect? No, it's not perfect. And we're by no means nearly done on on what we can do to improve it. We need to continuously train our staff. Our authentication staff has three months training. Is there a human element to it? Yes. Are there mistakes sometimes? Yes. If something goes wrong, we step in. Do we need to do more work to recognize products even already when they've been uploaded? Yes. How can we do that? We can use visual recognition technology through AI. We can use our community. There's one fascinating lady in the UK. She's an expert on mulberry packs. I probably get Two emails a week from her where she says, you know, I'm an expert on Mulberry. This bag is fake. This doesn't work. So we have she this. can tell that from just looking just at looking the at it, Just looking at it. And we're learning from her. We're kind of empowering our community. And we're setting up programs now to find other people who do other bags because she has many people in her network. And I think the most important piece of the work to continuously reduce the risk is to work together with the brands. I mean, the brands have all the power in their hands to help us get smarter. That starts with helping us and train our staff. And there's many brands out there which provide concrete training to our staff on, on physically identifying or visually identifying the problems of authenticity. And there's also many brands now working on technologies around NFC or RFID and, of course, blockchain. And I can only highlight the fact how far the brands have come here. I mean, all the groups, all the brands have just moved in lightning speeds, even just since I've been here over the last two years, because they're starting to really open up to second hand and they see the opportunity that is behind it. And they're working on this technology. This technology is not easy, but we're already working today with several brands who have given us the physical ability to check the technology. When it's here, we're working with brands on projects around blockchain. So I think it's really an opportunity for the industry to continue pushing this. And, and, and it's been, you know, really humbling to see how an industry that has done so well. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the luxury industry has done extremely well out of COVID, even though they're still willing to be innovative and, and to push this. So it's been in a, a fascinating journey, and, and I can only say that, that I'm extremely excited on what is to do. So is the problem of authentication there? Yes. Do we try to get better every day? Yes. Is the problem a big one? You know, one in a thousand is one in a thousand too much, but there's so many levers that we can work on. And, and, you know, we're excited to remove those last obstacles.
3: We'll be back shortly with more from the BOF show right after this break.
2: This BOF podcast is brought to you by Cottonworks, your go-to textile tool for discovering what's possible with cotton. From fabric inspiration to exclusive trend forecasts to digital apparel design tools, cottonworks.com has the resources you need to stay in motion. And with many design decisions going virtual these days, Cottonworks now offers free digital cotton fabric files for use in 3D garment development. Create your free account today at cottonworks.com slash bof to gain access.
3: Explain, you know, concisely if possible, how the blockchain technology enables authentication. Sure. I mean, you think about um, an NFT. Explain, you know, concisely, if possible, how the blockchain technology enables authentication.
4: Sure. I mean, you think about an NFT, non-fungible token, that non-fungible token should be able to store the information of each individual item. And that information needs to be in some sort of way tied to some sort of a digital wallet. Let's call it a digital wardrobe. And if you have the item and you have clearly identified NFT tied to it, the only thing that we really need to do is to work together with the brands to say, okay, this is the product, this is the token that is tied to it. How do we transfer the token and how do we store the information that needs to be stored for future ownership? What is really exciting about blockchain on top of that, is the blockchain can also store information above and beyond the ownership. It can store pictures, it can store data, it can store the source of the materials that the product is made from. And all of these are actually ways with which we can reduce friction in the marketplace. I told you before about the liquidity and the the blockers of providing liquidity are... You know, the dream outcome is that to upload a product doesn't take you any time whatsoever because all that information is stored on an NFT and we just upload it. And, you know, if we want to spin this even further, an NFT actually could provide the brands an opportunity to make money with the product in the secondary market. So let's say you have a smart contract and that smart contract with brand X allows you to make X percent of fees on every single subsequent sale. I mean, we're talking about a sales business where they can just earn royalty in some sort of way on the products that are being sold. So I think the idea around blockchain is massively exciting because it fixes some real simple problems today, like authentication. It can help us remove blockers for the marketplace, but it also provides real monetization opportunities for the whole industry in the future. So I'm super excited about it. Is some of this stuff quite futuristic? Yeah, but things always come faster than you think. Talk to me about the
3: relationship with the
4: brand. Some of the brands, McQueen,
3: for example, is working very closely with you. Some of the brands, Chanel, for example, are very reticent about this space. You know, they might be starting to come around. When you sit down with someone on the more reticent side, like a Chanel, what, what do you say to them to help convince them and help them understand why it makes sense for them to be more engaged with the secondary market
4: the first thing i tend to say is that our existence is 100 tied to the products they produce in some sort of way we're the biggest homage to these products that is out there because we provide the evidence that these items carry a value to eternity and it's not just because there's big letters on a t-shirt and, and a big brand logo which is shiny but it's really around the craftsmanship it's around the sustainable nature of these items which gets produced with incredible passion and and hard work. So just the sheer fact that we exist is thanks to the amazing products that they produce. And what I try to explain to them is really this ability to educate consumers that paying more for something which has real quality is worth it and the likelihood that people will buy something for more and then use it longer is very high. So it's 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 really around the education that we're transforming people's mindset away from consumables to assets. And everyone hopefully should believe that us proving how valuable their items are is a good thing and not a bad thing.
3: Does that resonate with them?
4: I think it really does because even the most cynical businessmen out there realizes that... It's not really my choice or his or her choice. It's the choice of the consumer. And we don't have much of a choice. I mean, in the end, we need to do something today. And secondhand is absolutely the biggest lever today for the industry to drive more sustainable behavior. I mean, of course, we can talk about organic mushrooms and synthetic cotton or other more sustainable ways to produce it, but a lot of these are tied to a lot of additional costs. While our business comes with no cost at all, if anything, it creates more business. So, you know, if you ask me, it's just the smart thing to do. And, and it's a win-win situation, most importantly for the consumers and the planet, but also for them and for me.
3: Five years from now, what does this market look like? You know, the growth rates are pretty astonishing in the resale market. We've just working on a report at BOF about this market. And when I'm looking at some of the data, it just kind of blows your mind but if you could give me your view not like way in the future but 5 years from now how do you see this market developing in terms of who's involved you know how customers yes. are engaging how brands yep. are engaging all of that
4: i just see a global digital wardrobe i want to think about all the different ways technology can help us remove any of the bottlenecks that we have today for this business to be mass adopted and it's not i mean if you ask your friends what percentage of people use secondhand today is it 1 in 20 1 in 30 I mean, it's nothing in comparison to the people who buy clothing. So it's, it's really around removing and using technology to make it just the simple, easy thing to do that there's no way around it. So if I think about where could we be in four or five years, it's making it much more user friendly than it is today, making it much more fun to use it today. You know, I would love to know what the actual value of my wardrobe is today, tomorrow. Let's say you have a lot of items from brand X and that brand X suddenly has a new designer and the prices of that brand go up, and you see in your current account balance, like when you look at your stock market Robinhood account, yeah, you suddenly see it go up by 20%. That's so fun. It's like
3: an Imran wardrobe index, exactly. as there's
4: like a pricing. It's a stock market in some sort of way. You know, if yeah. you have an asset, these asset prices go up and down. So it's around really gamifying, make it fun, making it easier, making it more secure. And, and finding different ways to make it you know, sensible for all participants in the ecosystem. But I think most importantly, it's again coming back to the customers. We have this incredibly engaged community and the beauty about Secondhand is that people really define their own style. They can you know, shop back decades to find what they're looking for. They can find products that they might not be able to look for. I mean, we often think the world is Paris, the world is London, the world is New York, but we give access to people to products they would never get access to anywhere in the world so it's 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 really about this global digital wardrobe which gives access to products that people might not have access to because they're too expensive or because they just don't have a store anywhere near them so it's it's i just get really excited about it and i look at technology and what it can provide in this opportunity
3: 20 years ago when brands were kind of playing around with E-commerce, And mm-hmm. you know, it was the first time, you know, Net-A-Porter and Yukes and all these companies. When brands started some big luxury groups, instead of building their own e-commerce operations internally, they outsourced it. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them still do outsource it to mm-hmm. white label operations. Do you think there's any risk in the future that actually brands say, no, you know, we're going to try to manage resale internally and that cannibalizes your
4: opportunity? Do I see a risk? I mean, it will happen. It's guaranteed. I mean, there will always be brands who say, I want to control every part of my product. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely for it. The more people do this, I mean, I never wake up in the morning and think I'm going to compete with Depop or LVMH on the little pie that resale exists. Right now, my biggest enemy is fast fashion. And, you know, the 99% of people who are buying fast fashion versus the 1% of people who buy secondhand. So anyone going into this industry and educating it the pie is going to be so big. We're all going to have different value propositions. I'm not worried about this at all. Do I see that as feasible? No, I think some people will be good at it. Some people will be less good at it. Uh, if you think about secondhand, it's defined by one thing. It's the liquidity that you provide. So if anyone enters this market, they need to ensure the liquidity and they need to be good at doing what we do. I mean, you know, like you saw downstairs, we're very good at what we do and we will continue to get better at it. Who will be better than us at it? see, I will continue pushing the team hard and I will continue pushing myself very hard to make sure that we stay ahead of the pack. One final
3: question okay. which I've been asking to everybody.
4: We've been through this 16-month period of
3: disruption and pause and reflection and reset. Mm-hmm. You, know, you came from outside the fashion industry but you're very well versed in how this industry works now. What's the one thing that you'd like to see change in the way this industry works going forward as the world begins to reopen post pandemic
4: i think the one thing that strikes me the most in this industry is how it's built on exclusivity on not being accessible and if i think about the pressures we face in society i sometimes don't know if i like every aspect of that i think the world should be a fair place so so you know i think through online through players like us this you know sometimes very exclusive industry becomes a bit more accessible to a broader audience because a much broader audience also has the right for something beautiful. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, I would hope that exclusive is not always the best.
3: Thank you, Max. What we wear says a lot about who we are. Yet fashion is also a $2.5 trillion global industry that touches everyone on earth. I'm Imran Ahmed. I first started trying to make sense of the business of fashion 15 years ago, as it was being transformed by technology, globalization, and shifting consumer values. Now I'm on a journey to see how fashion is recalibrating after the pandemic to balance profit with purpose. This is the Business of Fashion Show. Join me to discover how fashion shapes business, culture, and identity, and to meet the people forging fashion's future.
2: L D E J A N E I R O, soldojanero.com, and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off.
1: Hi, I'm Kara Barry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide, from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax